Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Ali Carbone. Ali is a Brooklyn-based writer and the oldest sibling to three autistic brothers. In her most recent book, What Are You Looking At?, she writes about her journey of finding herself and rewiring her own brain. In this conversation, we discuss Ali's caretaker role from a young age, her relationship with her parents, how being the non-autistic sibling affected her psyche, the catalyst to understanding her lost identity, Ali's breakthroughs in therapy, her brother's transition into a group home, and tips for other siblings. In this episode, discover what's possible when the glass child heals. To learn more about Ali Carbone, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Ali Carbone. Hi, Ali. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a brief introduction. So my name is Ali Carbone. I'm the sister to three autistic brothers, all kind of on different parts of the spectrum. My oldest is completely nonverbal, epileptic, and blind. My middle brother is kind of in between uh, my youngest and my oldest. He's super social, but has really bad OCD. So it kind of makes it tough to like kind of do anything with him out in public. And then my youngest is super smart, but more like my oldest, not social, kind of likes to keep to himself and do his own thing. He's kind of like off the walls a little bit when he's in his own house, but he's definitely also the best behaved. And then there's me, the ringleader of my little circus. I like to call it <laughs> Allie's House of Autism. Um, I find that humor is the way that I get through. For me, like, who am I? I'm a writer. I live in Brooklyn, 31 years old, single, you know, like living my best Carrie Bradshaw life, like <laughs> minus the delusion of that character. And just trying to find my way, you know, just trying to figure it out. I wrote this book. I started it back a little bit before the pandemic when I was really kind of beginning my personal journey and it has cracked open so many more experiences I didn't really realize were kind of going in my head. So I'm excited to kind of share more about it and talk with you today. Great. Thank you. So you are you the oldest or the youngest of the No, I am the oldest. Yeah. Okay. My oldest is 29 and then it's 24 and 22. The middle one might be turning, might have just turned 25. Honestly, the math, I'm, I'm a right brain person. <laughs> but yeah, it's we're all separated by two years. And then me and my middle brother have like seven years in between. Okay, got it. Just trying to understand like the age gaps and everything. Yeah, my mom, like she had, Michael is, is the oldest. She had him when I was two. He was diagnosed when I was four. So I think that there were a couple years where, you know, they were trying to, her and my dad were trying to figure it out. You know, this was 94, he was born. So 98, by the time that they're starting to realize, you know, something's not right. And in 98, people really didn't know what autism was. She says all the time that she went ahead to have Anthony, my middle brother, because she didn't want me to be alone with Michael. And that <laughs> that didn't really work out too well for her. And then Luke was a wonderful surprise that also went left in this term of uh, diagnosis. So yeah, that's that's the age gaps. Okay. So in your book, you mention having this kind of maternal love for your brothers. What age did that develop for you? It's funny. I was thinking, I was doing my dishes the other day and I, was, I heard someone on a podcast listening say that they are like mentally six and emotionally 16. And I've been thinking about this. I think that I didn't really 
like, I don't know when autism came into my life, right? Like Michael was always Michael to me. Like even when he was two years old, running around, flapping, hitting himself, making, you know, noises that wasn't, oh, there's something wrong with my brother. That's just, that's my brother. So yeah, I, I feel like I want to say maybe when Anthony uh, was born, like, or when Anthony became a toddler. So maybe when I was like seven, eight, nine, like I really kind of started to feel responsibility over them. Mm. Uh, maybe because there was now more than just one. And I kind of understood that they were different or at least that Michael was different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, probably before I was 10 years old, like I really, I don't have any memories of ever being rid of like worry. I don't remember ever going out as a sibling and just me and my brother. Like I, I always remember always being, where is Michael? Where is Anthony? You know, eventually where is Luke? Who's acting what way? Like there was always that, do we have the books? Do we have the sensory toys? Do we have the stimmies? Like, you know, that was always kind of there for me. So I don't know. I feel like maybe I was born to be a third mother. Uh huh. So what was the dynamic like between you and your parents? Was this something that they kind of taught you to do or was, you know, it was just natural for you or yeah. What was that relationship like? It definitely comes natural. I think anybody that knows my parents would definitely say the same. I am a very obvious balance of the two of them. You know, my mom is incredibly funny and compassionate and my dad is very gentle and loving and dedicated. I definitely had kind of like a team relationship with them, right? Like it was always three and three, three on three. I looked at them as kind of like my partners as like the only people that ever really understood what I kind of knew was going on at home. Like other people could have tough life situations or have the same same thing as me, you know, in their own families. But my parents were the only ones that had those three, that diagnosis, they'd understand, you know, what my future is going to look like. I think there was kind of comfort in like a codependent relationship with them. I didn't really realize that until I moved out of my house and went to college. It was way worse for me than I think just the regular moving out of your house and you miss your family kind of thing. Like I really realized that I have latched onto my parents, I think just to feel not alone. I didn't have typical siblings, right? So I never really had anyone to talk to. My friends wouldn't understand. And I, when I was with my friends, I didn't want to be Allie, the, the sister. I wanted to just be me. So I never really spoke about it. Like it was two different lives. I think my life in my house with my parents was like a sacred union almost. It's definitely affected it. I'm sure we'll get to it, but it's taken time to kind of look back and be like, okay, this is what it was when I was a kid and it got me through at that time and everyone was doing the best that they could, especially my parents. But I look back now and I, and I see like, you know, where there was opportunity for me to be a, a regular kid and then maybe I probably would have turned out different, but Hmm. But, you know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. So being the non-autistic sibling, what does that do to your psyche? (sighs) I hate attention. It It made me be okay with like living in the shadows. And it's actually gotten to the point where like I have a hard time ever putting myself first because my entire life there wasn't just one person whose needs was more important than mine. There were three. So it's natural for me to just take the back seat in every situation and think that not only is it okay, but that I should. Hmm. And that's definitely made me kind of progress slower than I think a lot of my peers because I am kind of constantly not putting myself first. And for good reason, I feel, right? Like I never, I always felt like it was an honor to be the sister of my brothers. Like I always feel like I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be kind. I wouldn't be compassionate. Like I love my personality. I like being like a good person. But I think, you know, since since this book and like this personal journey, like let's call it that, I'm realizing that like, where I used to hold it as like my shield of armor, like a, a badge, like I loved it. Now I'm like, I'm behind. Like I wish that I had the same emotional opportunities to grow and develop like innocently, like the rest of my peers did. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are 
I guess, parentification, right? Like that's the term glass children. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be that you have a disabled sibling or a sick sibling. It could be addiction. It could be growing up in poverty. Like it's, there's so many people that don't get to have a childhood and there are a lot of adults walking around with, you know, child selves. They are just kids in adult bodies. And I think that's super important for people to realize. So I'm actually not familiar with this term glass children. Oh, well, buckle up. So this is like a sibling specific term. Um, and I guess I just kind of throw that out there because I've been doing like a lot of like sibling based conversations. Um, so glass children is like kind of this term that's arised with like the popularity of TED Talks. And, you know, we always need to put a label on everything. But basically the definition is anyone that was raised in a family where their needs had to be overlooked because of another family member who had special needs. The special needs don't actually have to be developmental disabilities. It can be sickness. It can be addiction. It can be, you know, social structure, whatever it is. But the idea is that we're just kind of seen through, you know, Mm. your identity is glass, you know, it's, it's whatever is standing behind you or whatever's in front of you. I feel like my identity is, is around my brothers and I've had to work to, to create who I am in my late twenties. When I think a lot of people, you know, you're figuring out who you are in high school and in college, I was like unlearning. I was realizing that I was nobody, Mm -hmm. you know, when I went to college and then ever since have been on this journey of, of trying to raise myself not raise myself because that discredits the like incredible work that my parents did their whole lives, but rewire my ways of thinking. And because of, of the experiences that I've had to live through. And I wrote in my book that I think my brain kind of held on. Like my mom says every once in a while, like when we have like those talks, like she'll, she'll be upset and she'll say like, do you remember anything good from your childhood? And she's not like trying to argue with me about it. She's genuinely asking because I think she feels in my personal journey that she failed. But I wrote in my book that sometimes I feel like I only remember the bad because this is like probably word for word. I only remember the bad because the bad was going to teach me more valuable lessons and it was going to help me get through. And it did. But now it's time for me to like live and have my own self and and realize that I can only be an advocate and a sister to my brothers if I'm here, if I want to be here and if I live for myself and I create myself. So yeah, I'm, my whole story is is really about trying to give spotlight to the people who have lived their entire lives in the background the untold stories of autism, not from the people who can't speak, but from the ones that can. So what are some ways that you've felt misunderstood? I think I've always misunderstood probably in in every way because nobody lived my experience. I've always kind of told stories about like public fights that I've had of like people staring at my brothers or people calling us retards or like, you know, people can understand that. But I think I never really worried about being misunderstood because my situation was so unique. I think I just assumed that that's what it's going to be. And then I just kind of rode with it. I always have tried to be very open and raw about who I am and why I am the way I am. And um, yeah, that's definitely made its way into conversations like you know I'm I'm definitely one that can put a damper on things but like with a smile like because I don't want to be misunderstood maybe you know mm. yeah cuz growing up with this identity being surrounded by other people around you was there like a turning point in your late 20s when you moved out that you kind of realized that maybe you've been living in the shadows and you needed to go on this journey. So the catalyst was college, right? It was the first time I moved out of my parents' house. My anxiety was insane. I was definitely always borderline depressed or just like chronically depressed, but never really realized it until I was away from my family. And I, you know, I started going on meds and I was still young at the time. So I didn't want to go to therapy. I didn't want to talk about it. I just wanted to feel better. So the college therapist just medicated me. And that sent me spiraling because you can't treat a problem you're not addressing fully. So, you know, college was tough, but I made it through. 
And then I think I spent a couple years back in my parents' house. I was working and I was just like, I was just sad all the time. Like I didn't want to go out. Like I didn't, I didn't want to do anything. I think I was just like in this limbo phase of, okay, the future is here. The one I've always kind of been afraid about, like the one when I have to move out of my parents' house and now I don't have that codependent support with them. I, I am now on my own. Nobody understands my life. So I think I kind of stayed home and, and I didn't really have a social life. I did that for a couple of years. And then I had a breakup. I was fed up with my job and being so grossly underpaid that I quit with no notice and decided to start looking for jobs in the city, got myself like an agency job. And then I moved from Long Island to Brooklyn. And once I moved into my apartment in Brooklyn with my college roommate, that is when the work really began because I went right back to how I was depressed in college and like living with the same person that I lived with in school. Like she saw me through all of that. But now I'm calling my mom crying and I'm, you know, I'm upset and I'm asking for help. And now she's like, you're not a kid anymore, Allie. Like you have to go to therapy. And and that's when I actually found a therapist and started talking about my life. And that was the first time that I sat down with someone face to face and she looked me in the eye and she, I told her my story and I'm laughing and doing my, my little shtick, like my thing. And she looked at me like, are you kidding me? Like, why are you acting like that? Like, it's like, you know, like she got real with me. She, she pulled the blinders off. She like was like, stop laughing about it. Stop making a joke about it. And she became my advocate. And that changed a lot for me. Hmm. Okay. Got it. So were you then able to see what happened in your life from a more realistic point of view, rather than just this like cover you were putting on? Yeah, I was seeing now the whole picture because there was someone who didn't live in the house. So I would explain the stories to her. And and when I would explain like experiences, circumstances, like I would always immediately defend my parents. And even if I didn't have to, I didn't have to with my therapist. Like she's an advocate for everyone in my life. But I would be defensive and she would be like, yes, but two things can be true at the same time. Your parents were doing the best they can. They did love you tremendously and all they wanted to do was make your life but they also could have you know been putting too much time into the board whatever like the two can exist at the same time she was the one that made me realize that my parents are people too they're not just my parents they're human beings that are having the same experience that I'm having Mm -hmm. so yeah she opened my story up into like a completely different worldview yeah are you still receiving support now? Oh yeah, I'm still with my girl. I won't say her name because I write about her in the book and I change her name in the book. Okay. And I don't know if she has, I'm sure she has clients all over, mm-hmm. all over Brooklyn and, and New York, but I've found therapy to be a major staple for me going forward. And it's funny, I've had a lot of people ask me about therapy and like, especially cause I've been in it for like three or four years now, like consistently once a week. And I've had people ask me like, are you ever going to stop going? Like, do you feel cured? Like what's the point of therapy if you don't move beyond something? And for me, I realize now, and maybe even right now in this moment, I don't necessarily go to therapy to solve things. Like, yes, when I first started, it was to realize my life, to see the patterns, and then try to start to make little changes to not keep going in those circles. But aside from that learning, my therapist is my advocate. She's like the angel on my shoulder, like the angel and the devil. It's nice to have someone that you can trust that speaks up for you in a close setting that reminds you that you're important, that reminds you that you should keep going and that you are worthy, even though that's not something that was necessarily instilled in you when you were young, because it couldn't be, because there was too much going on, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting point about the continuation of therapy, because yeah, after a certain point, you get into kind of maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was seeing a therapist for a while consistently and then eventually kind of faded to like once a month. And then now it's, she'll check on me and I'm like, oh yeah, I need to talk to you, you know? Sure. I wonder though, it's an interesting thought of, does it then become a dependency in itself? If you've had this codependency with your parents before, are you always going to need that external validation or not validation, but like 
support. And maybe that's okay. I'm just wondering, have you ever thought about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I have thought about that. And I think the answer is yes. I will always need support because I'm a human being. And this is one thing that I am trying to actively push myself to do more because when I go through things, so this book definitely as revealing as it was and healing as it was, it also was revealing and that I, I'm almost restarting this this healing journey. So when I'm going through things, I like to isolate, right? Because my situation is so unique because you know if it's not going to be my parents, then I'd rather it just be no one. So yeah. Mm, okay. Everybody needs someone, you know, and I think with my situation, like, yeah, I could, I could always have a friend or even a partner, but like, and once again, this is something I'm, I'm realizing right now in real time, you guys are in therapy with me. (laughs) Uh, Anybody that I meet is still not going to live the experience that I did with my parents. I think that's one thing that my parents are, uh, I almost jealous of them is that the two of them go through this together. Their partner experiences this pain with them. I don't necessarily have that. And even if I do have a partner that's a support system, they won't be someone that will have gone through all of this with me. And that's impossible. But my therapist is someone that at this point has gone through it all with me because we have spent thousands of hours at this point of going back into like my deepest hidden memories that like I never, you know, three, like my therapist knows three-year-old me better than I probably do. Mm-hmm. I I hope she never retires. Like, <laughs> no. And I, and you, I shouldn't say that. Like there is a point when I'm, I am sure. And, and it's not going to be a point. I can handle myself. I got myself. I've always held myself down, but I think having somebody that you can go into a closed room with and share your experiences, no judgment, I think that's key to getting through. Yeah. Are you able, you know, and no pressure at all, but are you able to share any of your kind of aha breakthroughs that you've had in therapy? Maybe so we can get an idea of some of these experiences that you went through growing up. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I talk to my therapist about are my personal relationships the dynamic that I grew up in has actualized itself in the way that I show up in almost every facet of my life in in terms of relationships. So with friends, I'm always the caretaker, which is fine. And I love it. It's fulfilling. It it makes me feel good, especially after leaving my house with my brothers. It, it, you know, that caretaker was almost kind of stripped away from me with them being in the group homes. Mm. So I think like that role with my friends was always amazing, but specifically like in my romantic relationships, I choose the wrong partners. Like I choose people that need me, not want me. Like I have a very obvious pattern of, of man that I date. Mm. And that's not to say that these, these men all like they're different people. Some are good. Some are bad. Like there are good men (laughs) in these stories, but I gravitate towards situations where I feel most comfortable and I feel most comfortable when I am not the subject. I am the support Mm -hmm. where I am giving my all to someone in hopes of them crossing milestones. They never thought that they would cross. Like we never thought that, you know, my brother would do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, I'm going to be with people who I see as a project or I see as someone who just needs, who just needs one person. It's almost like I am looking to be the person that I wish I had as a kid for everyone else. So that was a major, a major breakthrough. Like when I first started therapy, I always told I don't always told everyone around me like, oh, I like guys that are different. Like I like guys that have a story. Like I like guys that have baggage because it makes me feel less alone. And like that, that's a cute, whatever. Like I get it. That makes sense. But that's not why I was doing that because I felt comfortable in chaos. I do feel most comfortable in chaos. What is a healthy relationship? I've never seen it. You know, like my parents are so in love and yes, their relationship is definitely healthy, but it's rooted in, you know, my experience with my parents' love, you know, it's based in, in trauma. I've never known, I've never known peace. That's another conversation that I've had uh, a breakthrough that I've probably had in therapy that I have then shared with my parents 
Um, and it's been eye-opening to them. A lot of parents of autistic kids don't realize this when you have a typical kid. You've lived your life as it was before you had your child. Like I say to my parents all the time, they, my parents mm. had me when they were 30 and 31. You live 30 years normally. You live 30 years with peace. You got to grow. You got to experience life, innocence. You got to just have fun, whatever. I have not known peace a day in my life. Like four years old, Michael escaping because my mom decided to go to the bathroom at the wrong time, you know, or, or my mom was working one day, four years old, me and Michael in, in the backyard and my dad ran inside to go answer the phone. And I'm a daddy's girl. And I chased after him because, you know, even after he told me, don't leave Michael alone. And now two seconds later, Michael's down the block on a main road, wow. you know, walking to McDonald's, but nobody, he doesn't speak. And, and, you know, we can't find, and it's like, you know, those are the experiences that I remember as a child. I don't remember, going to Disney. I don't remember, oh, family vacation to Disney World. No, I remember going to Disney and getting kicked out of the Peter Pan Cafe because there was an older couple staring at my brothers and I saw red and I lost my mind and started cursing, crazy screaming as a 12-year-old. Mm. My parents and parents of disabled people, if they weren't a sib themselves, got to experience life. Like I don't, as much as they live the life with me and they're the only ones who know how I feel, they also don't. That wasn't a breakthrough for me. I think maybe that was more of a breakthrough for my dad specifically. I told him that and he was reading uh, or he had a conversation with like an older sib at like some fundraiser. And he called me the next day and he said that this guy said exactly what I said to him. And he was like so blown away and, you know, he never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. And how did your parents take it when you left the house? Because you were kind of stripped from the family and they lost, you know, an extra set of hands, an extra caretaker. Yeah. You know, I never was like, I, I was, of course, an extra set of hands, but like my parents got it. They didn't necessarily need me. The boys went into a group home when I was a sophomore in college. So it was probably only like one year of me being out of the house before they moved into a children's residential program. There were three spots that opened up in one house on Long Island, which is so rare. So my mom took it for me because she didn't want them to be my responsibility growing up. I don't think that much changed for them. Okay. I think also my dad, my dad has specifically said this when I started writing the book, he started going through some of like old home videos just to kind of like get me inspired, whatever. He's very supportive. So like he sent me a bunch and um, I was watching this Christmas video, you know, like just reliving the trauma, like laughing through it. And um, he wrote a letter to go out with our Christmas picture. The Christmas when I was 16 years old, it's when uh, Michael went blind that year. He had went blind a couple months before the holidays. And, you know, we live, uh, my family lived on Long Island, like Christmas, but you know, everybody's, this is, this is the quintessential time show your beautiful, you know, JC Penny family. And then even further write a letter about all the great things your kids did that year. And my family would get these pictures and these letters, you know, year after year. And I think this was just a year that was just so incredibly depressing that my dad had just kind of had it and was like, let me write my own progress letter. And, uh, you know, wrote about what they were going through with Michael, wrote about, you know, the boys and how they were progressing. And, and of course, wrote about me. And in it, he wrote like about how they're so proud of me because I'm an independent 16 year old who gets all of her homework done, her dance, and, you know, enjoys a, a life with her friends with little prodding from them. Like I'm, I'm independent and I take care of myself. And they are so proud of how independent I am and that I have a difficult life and that they're so proud of, of the way that I just kind of head down and, and figure it out. I think that my, it made me realize reading that letter is that my parents always thought, as did I, that I was just strong. Like I got it. Like I think I was like this 16 year old that like, I was never sad. Like I wasn't angry. I just, I used humor as my armor and I just tried to make it through. I never, I never cried. My mom used to say that like when we were younger, she'd say, you never cry about the boys. And I'd be like, well, you know, what's to cry about? Like I cry about them every day now. I'll tell <sighs> you that. But like, yeah. you know, it, I definitely, I guess, and again, here we go, another breakthrough. I was disassociating probably a majority of my childhood. Mm. And I think a lot of people are disassociating 
in just their everyday lives and are calling it strength mm. and it's not mm-hmm. it's avoidance but you know i was a kid like um i didn't want to go to therapy i wanted to hang out with my friends like i remember the one summer that i was actually in therapy because i was threatening i like was having suicidal ideation that i finally had told my mom about and i just remember like there was this one summer like i had a session and i remember calling my mom and saying like because i was at my friend's house and i was like can we just cancel like i don't want to leave I wasn't ready to make a change. So what's, what is the answer for siblings, for young kids, typical kids? I don't know. Cause like, you don't want to talk about it when you're younger, right? You just want to be normal. But if you don't talk about it and you're just head down autopilot normal, then you're going to wire your brain in a way that's not beneficial to you as an adult. Right. I don't know. I well, don't know what the answer is. Well, I think now you're talking about, like you said, in the nineties, right? A time when there was not so much information about autism in general and maybe not even supports for parents and resources. And so now, you know, with social media and just the world being more connected, having sibling support groups for younger kids, you know, maybe even led and facilitated by older people, not saying you have to do this, but someone like you who has been through it, you know, and can kind of normalize the talking about it. Yeah. Because maybe that's where we can break away from the the idea of like, no, you have to be strong. You can't cry. You just head down, get good grades. Cause like you're saying, it affects you later in life. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Actually, I'm thinking about it now. Like if socially, if it was different, like if technology was different, like, yeah, I didn't want to go to therapy, but now like I'm in all these like Sibnet Facebook groups and I'm reading people just posting how they feel. Mm -hmm. And I'll just sit there and cry and be like, oh my God, I had no idea that anyone else, like I feel exactly like this. Like that probably would have been really great for me as a kid, just to not even feel pressured to share or like, you know, just like being able to kind of hide behind a screen and and see, you know, sharing on social media, like people are so much more, myself included, like when you see people sharing their sibling relationships and it makes you kind of want to, I think I was never embarrassed of my brothers, but I was always afraid of people laughing at them. And, And this is a generational thing. I'd say to one of my best friends is a high school teacher. And she's always talking about how just like compassionate Gen Z is. And like, no wonder, like they have the world at their fingertips. Like they understand they have access to endless information. Like, why would you choose to be ignorant? And because of that, they treat people like it could be them because they know it could be right. And I almost think if I was growing up now, it would be very different for me. Hmm. I think I would feel a lot less alone. I think because when I was a kid, if someone was being made fun of in school, like even if they weren't disabled, I would be throwing up on the inside, like pain, because all I could think about was if that was my brother, like I would just want to knock this person out. I'm sure bullying is still, it's crazy, of course, like social media, but I almost feel like people pick on people their own size now. They don't necessarily pick on vulnerable vulnerable people as much. I don't know. I don't know. But that but you make a great point. Like I think this age of technology offers a different alternative for outreach and like those sibling support groups. I've actually been working with, or not working with, but talking to the agency that runs my brother's group home, their Citizens United. They were actually trying to get me to kind of help amp up like the next generation of siblings. Because right now it's mostly people that they're all in their 60s. They're people that their parents have already passed. They've already transitioned and now they're in the caretaker role. We need to start having conversations, siblings specifically. Like for for me, where I'm at in my life, my parents are still alive. So like, yes, I am up to date on all like the financial, the parts of running their lives of actual caretaking. Mm -hmm. But siblings in my timeframe now, like before our parents are gone, we need support in the social aspect of it. Like how do I form a sense of identity, number one. How do I get through going to weddings and not being able to to have my brothers at my own wedding or or how do I introduce my partner to my family or, you know, just like social situations, mm-hmm. not necessarily like, 
oh, I got to make sure that Michael doesn't have two grand in his bank account next month, or, you know, got to make sure that we spend his, his state money or, or they're going to think we're saving it up. Like, you know what I mean? Like right. the, the more life-based, cultural-based, social-based kind of support while we still have the space in our heads to care about that stuff. Because when our parents do go, then it is time to kind of sit down and get to work. Right. But, so they're, they're trying to kind of get me to help energize like a, just a younger demographic and have a different conversation, a different sibling conversation. It doesn't always have to be about not the boring stuff, but the overwhelming stuff that we wish wasn't our responsibility. I mean, we wish none of it was our responsibility, but I think a lot of siblings are like, uh, I'll deal with that when the time comes. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. I've been through enough my entire childhood. Shouldn't I get to kind of like, you know, forget about it while my parents are still here and I'll deal with it later. And that's totally fine. But there's still stuff that, you know, for us to kind of deal with now. Yeah, absolutely. I think you'd be great at it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll see how it goes, right? Like it's hard because even when I do start and I start to like put ideas down, I think to myself, would 16-year-old Allie look at this and be like, leave me alone? And a lot of the times I say yes to myself. And I think that's kind of what holds me back. But with time. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes you also just need one 16-year-old to be willing to listen. And that person can be the peer support for everyone else too, you know? 100%. Because then they hear it from someone who's more like them. Yeah. So... Ali, you know, you were mentioning kind of future planning. This leads me to a question that was submitted by one of our community members, Danielle Terrell, who she also... I know, Danielle. That's my girl. Yeah. <laughs> she's now also helping manage our podcast Instagram. And uh, when I told her that, you know, I had an interview with you coming up, she was so excited because she bought your book and I think months ago and was... Yeah, really excited that we'd be having this conversation. So she has a question for you. And just a note for our listeners, if anyone ever wants to submit questions for our episodes, just follow us on Instagram and stay up to date on future guests. So Danielle wants to know, you know, in talking about future planning, in your book, you talk about wanting to outlive your brothers to ensure that they're taken care of. And so was this something that you and your parents sat down and talk about like what did that conversation look like with your family? There've definitely been multiple. There's two conversations, sit down conversations that I have a very intense memory of. The one is when my parents told me that the boys were moving into a group home and one where I sat my parent where I was just sitting on the couch in the living room with my parents I don't remember how the conversation started, but I was trying to explain to them that no matter where the boys live, if they're in my custody or not, I will always feel responsible for them. And as such, like I think at the time I was telling my mom that I felt like I could never leave New York or that I would never want to be far away from them. I think that like wanting to outlive my brothers, like I think that is just within me. My parents never sat me down and said, you're responsible for them. You have to make sure they're okay for the rest of your lives. And I think like a lot of families or like super religious families are very like culturally intense families. Like they kind of feel like that. I am very lucky that my parents never put this on me. And maybe it's because there's three of them, you know, maybe they, it's like statistically impossible. They're like, let's leave this girl alone, you know, <laughs> but no, my parents never made me feel like it was going to be my responsibility. And maybe that's why. Maybe that's why, like I needed to hold on to it because I knew that it wasn't expected of me. For myself, like I can tell you like why I feel this way. Like I just think about what could happen to them if I wasn't around or what their life would look like. I would just always want to be able to be around and be their advocate. Like there are incredible people that take care of them every day of their lives, but people are people. They are their jobs. The group home staff, it's their jobs, right? So there will be... As we get older, like I've had the same staff, they, we've had the same staff for like almost like the last 10 years and, and they evolve. But, you know, as I get older, I'm sure there'll be bad apples. That's something that, you know, I always feel kind of protected or that like they're my responsibility. I think when I wrote that I wanted to outlive them, like I feel like once I know that nobody could hurt them 
ever again, that's when I would feel the peace to be like, ah, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and to be able to let go. Yeah. How do you feel about their situation right now in the group home? I'm very grateful for it. So like I said before, like one of those conversations, like when I, I just remember my mom crying, like I put them in the group home so that you would never feel burdened by this so that you can go out and live your life and find somebody that makes you happy and, and live your life to like what, whatever you want. No, no holds barred, but it just felt better to kind of be like, you know what? No, I, I want, I want that responsibility. But now since they're in the group home and since all of this therapy and not just therapy and not just writing the book, but also continuously living like this human experience, continuously trying to actively break out of my patterns. Like it's not easy. Like I am still making the same mistakes that I made in in that book, you know, just a little bit older. One thing though, I do feel now with the boys being in the group home and with like some of the things that I just went through this last year, which is common in book number two, I do feel free now in that I feel like I can, I just got it like a new job um, and the agency is based in, in LA. Like I've always kind of like felt like I wanted to move to the West coast. Like I'm like this creative girl. I love, like, I love showbiz. Like I love like just anything that's like fun. Right. And that's New York, whatever. But I always kind of like, you know, Hollywood has always kind of like been this like mm-hmm. thing in my head. And I wonder if, it was always this thing in my head because I always knew that I couldn't do it or I always never felt like I would want to do it because I had this anger of the boys at home. Now I don't feel like that anymore. I got this new job and now I'm like, maybe I can do six months of the year in LA and then six months of the year in New York. Like I will always home base. I will always need to be by my brother's. And that's not a responsibility thing. That's just, that's my family and they can't get on a plane to come see me. So I will always be around to see them. But I don't feel as like blocked in by my own, like my own boundaries. I was putting boundaries on myself because maybe I I didn't know myself or I, it's not that I didn't trust the group homes or whatever. I think everything takes time, you know, like it, it really is just time. My brother's moved in when I was in college. It's been probably 12 years now. It's a routine. You know, you learn to, to trust, you learn to kind of go with the flow. Yeah. And there are things that are out of your control also. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, this perfect example, like when they moved into the group homes, they moved into the children's residential program. That's only until you're 21. And then you have to move into an adult home. So Michael, my oldest turned 21 years before Anthony and Luke. So we knew that they would be split up. Like when we first started doing this, it was one house, one car ride, every Saturday, pick them up every Sunday to bring them back. Now it's two houses you know, Anthony and Luke are are now 21, over 21. So they moved into their adult homes and hopefully both, you know, sets are in the homes that they'll be in for the rest of their lives. But things change, you know, things evolve and there's always going to be another hurdle to get over, Mm -hmm. but they are getting easier to get over just because of the amount of support that we've gotten through the group homes. Like that's one thing that I am such an advocate for. And I know like it's such a hard decision for parents judgment. Like I, like there were, there were family members that didn't talk to, you know, my parents for a year and they would never admit it to themselves why they didn't. But it's because I come from a super Italian traditional family and, you know, we don't put our kids in, in group homes, but well, then who's going to take care of them? Is it going to be you? Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be me. So my parents made that decision for their typical child. And I think that's some, and not, not just family, I'm sure friends, you know, like you always, as a mother, you always know that people are going to judge you. My youngest was 11 when he went into the group home. I can't imagine what that felt like for my mom to put her baby in a home for one of her other babies, you know, mm-hmm. but it changed all of our lives. It changed the boys' lives. They all go to the bathroom now. They can take themselves to the bathroom. Like when they moved into the group homes, they were wetting the bed every night, like a child, you know, they eat beyond chicken nuggets and fries now, you know, like my family, when they come home on the weekends and when I go home to Long Island, my dad can make a legitimate adult meal and we will all sit down and eat it. Like Michael included, Anthony included, Luke included forever. It was always the boys food and me and my parents food. Like that was made possible by, by the group homes, because when you're a mother, you're a parent, their life sucks. You want to give them everything they want. 
cookies. You want to let them be on the iPad all day long. Like my brothers go to baseball games. They went to the Jets game last week. My brothers were at the Juve Caribbean um, West Indian Day Parade in Brooklyn the other day when I was upstate. I was like, damn, I want to be at the West Indian Day Parade with my brothers. Like, you know, like they have experienced things that they would have never experienced if my parents did what I'm sure a lot of people think is the right thing to do, which is to just always take care of your your kid, you mm-hmm. know, or, and just you know, until you can't anymore. And it's not smart. It's not good because then when you die, then you leave people behind who don't know how to take care of them. I, you know, again, I can go on Mm. forever about this. Yeah. Well, I mean, each family is different and I am glad that yours found what works for you guys. Yeah. 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 My parents got like their life back too, you know, like in their sixties, they were still basically taking care of infants, you know, and now, Every once in a while, they'll leave them back for a weekend and and go to Florida or, you know, go out to dinner, like do things for themselves, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Allie, I'd like to close with one last question here. Yeah. What advice would you give to other siblings of autistic loved ones? Mm. Uh, I So I've been asked this question so many times and it's, I should have an answer by now. I have no advice. I have presence. I share my story and my experiences so people don't feel alone. I think autism is a spectrum, right? So even though I have, even if someone out there does have three autistic brothers, we don't have the same experience. No one autistic kid is alike, right? So I don't know, you know, I don't know what your parents are like and I don't know what your family dynamics are like. But what I do know is that just because you were born into a situation where you can't be number one doesn't mean that you don't deserve to be number one and that you should find ways and people and experiences and opportunities that make you number one, that remind you that you do deserve to be the main star sometimes. I've been lucky enough to find a career path that I am so uplifted and like you know, pushed to be who I am outside of my brothers. That's been amazing for me. I've found multiple groups of friends who not only see me and see my past and get me now, like even like my, my friends that I, since I was five years old, like who kind of experienced this life with me, but didn't realize what was happening. You know, they see it now and they want to celebrate me. They force me, they, they don't force me to celebrate my birthday. They plan it. Find the people out there that will put you first because they exist. I wish that it was as easy as people realizing when you're a kid that they should step up and give you a little extra attention because you probably don't get it at home. But at the end of the day, like people don't know what they don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, so reach out. And if you can't reach out, look for those moments that remind you that you're important and then stick to them go back to them, find more ways to have more experiences like that, spend more time with those people, go to those places more often. I think you have to be your own life raft. Yes, but someone will throw it to you. So it's just finding who that someone is. Mm. Great. Now you got some advice. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Okay. I guess so. See, this is, this is what I'm saying is like these, all these podcasts, everything, all these conversations are like really therapeutic for me. Like writing the book, having these conversations, like I'm, I'm still learning. It's up and down. Like, that's just what life is. Like you go back, you take 10 steps back or two steps forward and 10 steps back. But everything I learned when I took those two steps forward is only going to make those 10 steps back easier to overcome. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm constantly screwing up. Like I'm constantly going back to my patterns and making the wrong decisions. But every single time I learn a little bit more And when I'm presented with those opportunities again, I'm now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, wait a minute, is this a trauma response? Do I really want this? Is this going to be good for me? I'm being more intentional. It takes time, you know? Yeah. I think that's one thing that I want to say to siblings is that it takes time and that if you're 30 years old, if you're 40 years old and you still feel like you're that broken six-year-old, like that's, that's okay. It literally takes time. There is no timeline. Mm-hmm. We all we all kind of move based on what we got. Yeah. That's what I got. All right. So 
How can people learn more about you? Are you, do you have a website? Are you on socials? Yeah. I mean, listen, if you want to know more about me, you can read the memoir, the life story I just wrote, because let me tell you, I really give it all. Like I'm getting so much great feedback. And the number one thing people say to me is how raw the book is. And (laughs) so I'm being super, super honest. Like if you want to know anything about me, like if you want to live inside my brain, you can read What Are You Looking At? It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads, anywhere you get your books. I have a professional website, uh, my freelance business, which I don't really do much on the side anymore. I'm a writer. It's called Nails on a Keyboard because, you know, Nails on the Keyboard. <laughs> I have like the the trailer, the real video for the book. Like I have that on my website. So you can check that out there. Okay. You know, and also like I, I don't like to say this all the time because I do get a little crazy on there. But like I do share a lot of my experiences, my life story on Instagram, you know, just being me and all that comes with it. So it's my brothers. It's trying to have like this experience, this fun, young, single girl life. But also I'm super honest about being depressed and struggling. And so, you know, if you kind of want to follow me in the day to day on the gram, all right. but don't judge me. So. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll put links to your book and your website and, and everything in our show notes. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Allie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a really fun conversation. I mean, I know, sorry that the topics are maybe a little bit hard to talk about, can be kind of heavy, but. No, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm surprised I I caught myself, like I'm doing better with not crying. Like, you know, like I'm getting through these topics, which is like, it's really, it's refreshing to feel empowered. And it's okay if you cry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. I know. I I do it. I do it, girl. All right. Well, thank you again. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I really appreciate Ali's candor and willingness to show vulnerability. Her story is a good reminder that family dynamics can be very complex and that you never really know what someone might be going through. I'm glad that the idea of therapy is becoming more normalized, and I hope that other siblings out there seek the support they might need in order to process any unresolved issues. Like Allie, are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Or a self-advocate wanting to share your story? Or a professional seeking to improve your practice? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.